0: So if you have a Bible, we are going to not be using, utilizing the Gospel of Mark today. We're going to be jumping from Mark over to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're going to be starting in verse uh, 13. Now scripture reads, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it had been written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered him, destroy the temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple that Jesus had spoken of was his body. And he, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken It's the word of God for the people of God. A couple of things we're going to glean from these scriptures today, but the first thing that I want to talk about is probably uh, the most obvious part of this scripture because we get a glimpse of Jesus uh, that we're really not accustomed to seeing in Jesus. Jesus gets mad today in our scriptures. Jesus clearly gets angry. He's upset, and we probably tell ourselves this certainly does not look like the Jesus that we are accustomed to seeing, is it? Since January or since the end of December, we've, uh, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going over, over uh, a, a number of Jesus' teachings. We've, we've talked about loving our enemies. We've talked about praying for those who persecute us. We have talked about uh, being light to the world and, and flavoring uh, the world with, with, uh, with, with Jesus' love. We've talked about not seeking retaliation, not seeking revenge, um, when we are hurt, when we're persecuted even when people harm us. All of this, of course, coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. So we compare those teachings and we compare what we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount thus far and we get to this scripture today. And this kind of looks like a little bit of a different Jesus. The Jesus we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount does not look a whole lot like the guy that we see today who's chasing people and chasing animals out and making whips and uh, chasing all these folks out of the market. Here's one of the problems we have when we try to reconcile or when we try to uh, understand Jesus a lot of times. A lot of times, one of our problems is that over the centuries, over the decades, however long, we have oftentimes tried to domesticate Jesus. We have tried to some degree to fit Jesus into a nice little box that we can understand. We've tried to make Him in a lot of ways into our image, or at least into the image that we like to believe that Christ is. There's a word that we can fixate on today. And I want you to remember this word as we, as we talk about this scripture, as we talk about this, this narrative, this story uh, today. And that word is nice or niceness. To a great degree, a lot of us have simply made Jesus into a nice guy. And don't misconstrue anything that I say today because ni- being nice is a good quality. However, you are not going to find the theme or you are not going to find the idea of being nice anywhere in the Bible. You'll find kindness. Jesus preaches a lot about kindness, but the idea of being nice is not in Scripture. It's something Jesus never taught. And it's something that we have created Jesus to be, to a great degree, is a nice guy in all circumstances. And I would argue that we have made niceness a major quality of the church and a major quality that we want to be and that we want to portray and that we want to teach others, oftentimes to the detriment of ourselves, oftentimes to the detriment of other people, and certainly oftentimes to the detriment of God's kingdom and our churches. So keep that in mind. I want to show you guys something. Crystal and Carol, y'all do not get... And Sandy, y'all don't get to participate in this. <laughs> Who recognizes this picture? Everybody? Yeah, I found this um, I found this in one of our storage rooms back here um, a couple of days ago. Even if you have not attended, even if you haven't been a member, this, this comes from Brock's United Methodist, even if you haven't attended or even if you've never... We're not originally a member of Broxton United Methodist. I am going to venture to guess that if you have been in a Protestant church in the last 60 to 70 years, you have seen this very picture somewhere. You may have seen it on a wall in a Sunday school room. You may have seen it on a bookmark. You may have seen it on a, on a church bulletin but you've seen, or a magnet. You've seen this picture somewhere, Okay. This picture is a replica of a painting that was uh, created in 1940, and I can't remember the artist's name. I've got it written down up there. Like it's, it's not really of any consequence. But I want to point out a couple of things about this picture because this is oftentimes the image that we have and that we have created of Jesus in our minds, and as a result, this is oftentimes the Jesus that we believe in, and this is the Jesus that we try to live out. I want you all to look at this guy. Now, I want y'all to look at this guy in this picture. Let's, let's think of some adjectives that kind of describe him. This looks like a nice guy, doesn't it? This guy looks really, this guy looks safe. This is somebody who would, we'd probably let marry our daughters, dads and granddads. He's got that long, flowing, blonde hair, despite the fact that he's a Middle Eastern Jew. He's got those really gorgeous, pretty blue eyes. And he just looks like the kind of guy that we'd like to sit down and have some dinner with. A good neighbor. One word I left out, and this is, uh, he also seems kind of effeminate, if we, if, if, if we were being honest. He kind of look, looks very effeminate, to be honest with you. And I think that kind of stands out as well. <clears throat> you look at that picture, and you wonder why in the world would somebody want to arrest and crucify such a nice guy? Here's the problem. What you see in that picture, that ain't Jesus. That ain't Him. And unfortunately, and this is crazy how the human mind works, we have created this very type of image in our own minds and in our own hearts of who Christ is. What He looks like, certainly, if He looks like this dude... He's just a nice all-around guy, all-American boy. That ain't him, folks. And we need to get rid of this idea of domesticating Christ and creating him in our image or creating him in the image that we would like to be. Because certainly the image and the portrayal that we get of Jesus in the Scriptures today doesn't match that image, doesn't match that very common image that we have, that assumption that we have. Because, yes, Jesus gets angry today. And he, ang- and he acts on that anger. And he acts <clears> on that anger. Jesus can get angry because God gets angry. And anybody who teaches you that God does not get angry is wrong. God does get angry. Remember what I've taught you guys before. You can't separate. And, and, and we and we talked about this when we talked about the love of God. <clears throat> and that is that you cannot separate the character. And the essence of God from the character and the essence of Jesus. In other words, if God is an all loving God, then Jesus has to be an all loving Jesus because they are one and the same. If God can get angry, if God does get angry, certainly Jesus can get angry. And we see that in today's scriptures. Yes, Jesus gets angry and he acts on it. God gets angry sometimes. God gets ticked off sometimes. You don't have to read very far into, into the Bible, especially the Old Testament, uh, to understand and to see that, yes, God gets angry. Now, let me say this about God's anger real quick so nobody misunderstands me. I am not preaching an angry God. I am not preaching a, a God that is out, the, out to hurt us because, because that's the God, in all honesty, that I was brought up with, and that is not the overall character of God. God is love. John tells us that. That is the essence of God. There's a difference in understanding that God gets angry as opposed to God is angry. Okay? It's very important that we understand that. Yes, God exercises judgment, particularly we see in the Old Testament. He exercises what we call wrath in the Old Testament. He gets angry. But God is not an angry God. We know that from Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that He is, what, compassionate, that He is slow to anger. And here's something else we do that we create in our image too. When we start talking about the wrath of God, we start talking about God's anger, those types of things, we want to make Him again into our image. God's anger, God's wrath, as we like to call it sometimes, is not anywhere similar to human wrath and human anger. I think when we think about the ideas of wrath, the idea, the theme of wrath, we think about this explosive, unhinged type of human reaction that we see so many times in humans. No, that is not the way that God operates. God is long-suffering. Okay? God is long-suffering with us. It takes a lot to get him mad. It takes a lot for him to get angry. It takes a lot for him to, to act out and do what he does sometimes as an action to that anger. Very important that we understand So I don't want to give you the wrong image of who God is, but we should understand what He does. Sometimes, to deny that God gets angry, and sometimes acts on that anger, would be wrong all day long. We can think of... Uh, I'm going to point out one more thing. We can think of... And this will be congregational participation time. We can think of... All kinds of instances where God clearly gets angry. Can y'all name one or two? <laughs> if you look back to the Old Testament, that's one of the best places. Particularly the Old Testament prophets. You'll see, we know that God gets angry at the, at, the, uh, at the people of Israel. He gets mad at the people. He gets angry at the people of Israel for a number of things. He gets mad at their immorality. He gets mad of their personal sin. He also gets mad of their systemic sin. He gets mad because of the way that they are treating the poor and the marginalized, uh, the poorest among them. He gets mad at the way they're treating the orphans and the widows. Um, he gets mad at, the, at, their, at their neglect of these and he certainly gets mad um, when they turn to other idols or when they turn to other gods. But again, this anger is long suffering. It took a long time it took a lot of rejection and a very long period of, of, of their rejection of God and their refusal to, to get on board, so to speak, for him to finally act out and exercise the type of judgment that he did or allow them, in, in my perception, he allowed them to do what they wanted to do, in other words. And they suffered the consequences for it. So, yeah, Jesus can get angry. Jesus does get angry. God gets angry. It happens. Anybody who, who would teach you otherwise is, is, is just wrong. <clears throat> but God is not an angry God. And I hope that, hope that we, under, we understand that. Some of y'all are probably familiar with a, with a uh, piece of scripture from Ephesians that was written by the Apostle Paul as we talk about the idea of anger. This is another very popular scripture that gets pointed out and gets drawn out when this topic comes up. And you can look it up later if you want to, but it's Ephesians 4.26. <clears throat> and here's what Paul writes. He writes, In your anger do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, is what Paul writes. Now, does that contradict the scripture that we're reading today about Jesus? A couple of things. Jesus got angry, clearly, but did he sin? No, of course not. Of course not. We know that Jesus is infallible. We know that Jesus is perfect. There would not be a Christianity worth following. Had Jesus not been absolutely perfect, there would be no Christianity if Jesus had any flaw in regards to sin whatsoever. We would not, this church would not exist today. There would not be a church of Jesus Christ. Jesus got angry, yet he did not sin. Although he was tempted oftentimes. We remember that directly after his baptism. We just talked about that not too often long ago. Jesus was tempted still. Didn't sin. Secondly, that Paul recognized this. When he writes, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is pretty neat. Paul seems to imply or he seems to uh, infer that, yeah, inevitably we're going to get angry. Listen to it one more time. In your anger, do not sin. There's an inference there. There's an inference there that anger is going to happen. You're going to get mad. Inevitably. That anger in in and of itself is not sin. Jesus did not sin. Sometimes when we get angry, we don't sin. Certainly the things that make God angry should probably invoke some frustration and anger from us from time to time. Certainly things like selfishness are not of God. That's the kind of anger we need to be aware of. Be aware of. Bitterness, that type of anger, is something we need to be aware of. Ill will towards anybody, something we need to be aware of. Those clearly don't fall into the category of things that make God angry and should make, probably should make us angry. Lois, I think the power of sin over other people should make us angry. I don't even think we should necessarily get angry at people because of their sin. I think we should be angry at the power that that sin has over them in my interpretation anyway. These are the things that should make us angry. Mistreatment of people should make us angry probably, particularly those that Jesus calls the least of these in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. These things should probably invoke a little bit of upset inside of us. Now let me take it in a little bit of a different direction um, from where we have been going. And let me go back to that subject of niceness. Because I think that's something that is, is very, we, all churches should be talking about this, to tell you the truth. Because what happens, and I'm very guilty of this myself, if y'all want confession time from your pastor, this is confession time for your pastor. Oftentimes, in our pursuit or in our desire to suppress our anger, Because we think it is sinful, we allow bitterness to creep into our lives, which does become what? Sin. I have this problem. This is a problem. This is an issue for me personally. And I'm going to suspect to some degree it's an issue to each and every one of you in this building. We believe that all anger is sin for some reason. We believe when we get mad at somebody, that emotion that we call anger is sin. So in my case, I try to suppress that anger. If I get mad at somebody, I try to suppress it. I don't lash out. What happens very, very often when we do that, when we refuse to address that anger, is it boils and boils and boils. And it turns into something else. It turns into bitterness. It turns into resentment. It turns turns into sin. I'm hurting God and I'm hurting myself when I allow myself to do that. Recognizing and being able to act on that anger is something that we need to do. In order to be spiritual, spiritually healthy, we've got to have honest talks. We have to have honest conversations about our anger. We have to have these conversations as individuals with ourselves and our families and certainly within our churches. Don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating meanness whatsoever but we have placed in my opinion the idea getting back to false jesus over here we have we have allowed ourselves to place the idea of being nice or niceness on this pedestal of virtues that we hold near and dear to our hearts unfortunately the virtue of niceness once again is not taught in scripture but we've elevated that. It's not reflective of Christ, really. I'm not saying Christ wasn't a nice guy. I'm not saying niceness is a bad thing. But niceness can also harm us. Niceness can also harm other people. Certainly niceness can harm our churches and niceness can harm God's kingdom. What do you mean, Jerry? Well, let us let me give you an example. Let's say we're at church one day and uh, you're in Sunday school and you get into it with somebody over some theological discussion, Jude. And, and this person makes you mad. He makes he or she makes you angry. If you are like me, and again I suspect to some degree we all are, in this regard anyway, if you're like me, you're not going to address that anger with that person initially, for the sake of being nice, for the sake of not making somebody else mad maybe. I'm not going to address that issue with that person, more than likely. I'm not going to let them know they ticked me off. I'm not going to let them know they made me mad because I think my anger is a sin, right? Right? It's unjustified. What I am going to do is I'm going to carry that anger and I'm going to take it out to the parking lot or I'm going to take it home. I'm going to lash it out. Somebody's going to be on on the receiving end of that. It may not be that person. It's probably not going to be that person, but somebody's going to be on the receiving end of that. In my case, it's my wife. Okay, when I get mad at somebody, she gets to hear about it. What happens? Bitterness sets in. Resentment sets in. Nothing gets done. There's no, there's, 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 there's no, there's no uh, finality. Nothing ever gets accomplished. And it's just this big old circle. In the, in these, for the sake of being nice, for the sake of this false virtue that we've created for ourselves, our churches suffer. People suffer. Let me give you another example. Let's say one of our brothers or sisters is caught up in some kind of atrocious sin. Something absolutely atrocious. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's sexual sin. Um, Do we address that with that person? Or do we leave it alone for the sake of being nice? we got a brother or sister stuck in sin hurting themselves, hurting God, more than likely hurting other people. But for the sake of being nice, we don't address it. We don't talk about it. For the sake of, for for the potential of ticking somebody else off, we ignore it. And we allow that person to sin. We allow that person to hurt themselves. We allow that person to hurt other people. We allow that person to hurt the church of God. We allow that person to hurt God's kingdom. And it just goes on and on and on and on. I'm not advocating for being mean, but my gosh, if we love people to say we love the way we say we love people, that's the most loving thing we can do. A lot of times. Hey, you're messing up. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting God. You're hurting other people. But we don't do that, oftentimes, for the sake of niceness. Again, I'll go back to anger one more time. Anger in general. Certain things definitely make God angry. Certain things made Jesus angry. What we have to do a lot of times is we have to learn how to distinguish healthy and righteous anger from self-righteous anger and from these ideas or these themes of bitterness and ill will and resentment. We have to be able to distinguish those. There is good anger. There are instances where it's okay to be angry. Jesus is our example for that today. One more word, and I'm going to take this in a, in a different direction. Uh, Jesus' narr- Jesus's motivation for doing what he did really isn't spelled out for us in this, in this story, by the way. It's really not spelled out for us in the, in the narrative. We know that he, gets, that, he, that he gets angry, definitely, but why he did what he did... Isn't really told to us. We can infer some stuff, <clears throat> but but it, but it doesn't give us his motivation. Nowhere nowhere in in this story or the other stories um, on this incident in the in the gospels tells us really what Jesus's motivation was. I think it's pretty safe, however, to infer. <laughs> and here we go with inference again. It says that he was zealous. It said it's. I think the uh, I think the exact scripture was was the, the the apostles or the disciples recognized that he was zealous for his father's house for one thing but i think there's also i think we can all if we take this account this 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 instance from the gospel of john into account and the other gospel accounts of this story i think we can definitely infer that he was upset because of the way god's house was being treated i think there's enough evidence there that we can that we can we we can we can come to that conclusion anyway come to that answer reverence for god's house there's a lack of reverence ...for the house of God in these scriptures. And I think we can all probably agree on that. Jesus refers to this place of worship as his Father's house. It's a sacred space to him. It's a sacred space to God. It's it's not a space that's there that was intended to be cheapened by market practices... Let me tell you what's probably going on in these markets. Some of this, some of this stuff, and I'm not going to give you the whole story in the t- for time, time, time's sake. <clears throat> some of this was okay. But a lot of it was not okay because a lot of these market practices were bad. They were poor. People, they were poor practices because people were taking advantage of poor people. The temple, the house of God, as far as Jesus is concerned, as far as we're concerned, is a place that should be kept clean. It's a place that should be kept clean. Pure. It's a place that should be suitable, literally, for God's presence. The temple, today what we would call the church, is a place where worship is elevated above all else. All else. Maybe there are some areas where we could even think of where this occurs in our church, where worship is not elevated above all else. I've certainly been in those environments myself. It's not present here. I think I would tell you if it was, but certainly I've been in, in church environments where I would say the worship of God takes a back seat to other things that are going on. And you can probably testify to some kind of similar experience. Most of us, most of us in this room today, most of us in this sanctuary today would probably applaud what Jesus did. A lot of bad stuff going on in there. A lot of irreverence for, this, for, for God's sanctuary. A lot of irreverence for God's temple. A lot, of, uh, a lot of cheating going on, as a matter of fact. A lot of taking advantage of people going on. So we'd, we'd probably agree. We'd, we'd probably applaud uh, or say that we would applaud what Jesus did. Driving out all those folks, emphasizing the proper use of God's house. We would agree, I think, that most uh, most of us would agree that that, that, uh, the temple today, what we would call the church, is a holy space to be kept clean, to be kept pure for the sole purpose of meeting with God. But, and I told you I was taking this in an entirely different direction from anger. Y'all stay with me. Something happens at the end of this scripture. Something very interesting happens. And... When we consider that, in our minds anyway, we're, we're applauding what Christ did and uh, shaking our heads at the way that the temple was being treated, Jesus has a way of turning things upside down on us and making us look inside of ourselves because what happens at the very end of this scripture is very, very cool. And it should cause us or bring us pause and it should cause us to ask some serious questions. Let me reread re- 19 through 22. Jesus answered them when the Jews asked him, uh, what, what sign can you give to prove your authority over all this? Jesus answered them and he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And they questioned, this was a question. They replied, they, they questioned, um, it took us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple that he spoke of, the temple that Jesus had spoken of. Here it is. The temple that Jesus had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Remember what I said a minute ago, how we are applauding what Jesus did, how we recognize the irreverence that was going on in the temple. and Go, Jesus. Well, Jesus kind of transforms the meaning of this passage somewhat in the concluding verses here. He redefines what a temple is. He redefines temple as they would have understood it in His time following His ascension. And He redefines what a temple is as we understand it to a degree today. What does He say? He says, destroy this temple, his body, and I will rebuild it in three days. They misunderstood what he was saying at the time. They thought he was talking about the physical temple, the brick and mortar temple. He's talking about his body. Jesus' body was the temple of God. Upon Jesus' ascension, as we look forward to Easter, upon Jesus' ascension, Something else became the temple of God. And every person in this room is part of that. June, Carol, Crystal, John, Derek, Sandy, Danny, Becky, Aaron. Upon the ascension of Jesus Christ, the church, the people became the temple of God. The Holy Spirit literally resides in us. The Holy Spirit literally resides in us. Our bodies, is what I'm getting at, are the temple of God today. Jesus said, I'm the temple, destroy me and I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus ascended. We became the temple. We are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ himself. Remember, we applauded when Jesus destroyed the temple, when he broke out the whip, started chasing folks out. We applauded when he recognized the irreverence that was going on inside the physical temple. As we conclude today, ask yourselves a couple questions. Ask, I'll ask myself a couple of questions. Don't, anything I ask you guys to do, I do myself. Considering that, consider the fact that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God... And considering our lesson today from these scriptures, two questions. What remains in our lives that Jesus might overturn or drive out when he enters our temples? What remains in our lives, our hearts, our thoughts, our words, our actions that Jesus might drive out or overturned when He enters our temples. And after we've considered that, how can we rededicate our temple to be a clean and a holy space suitable to dwell with the Father? How can we rededicate our temples to be clean and holy spaces suitable to dwell with the Father's? pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that it is to worship you. We thank you for the gift that it is to gather with our brothers and sisters in your house. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the example of Jesus. God, we ask that you would help us to be able to live these teachings and the example of Christ in our lives. Help us to live these in our thoughts, our words, and our actions that they may glorify you that people may know who you are, that your kingdom may be known on earth. God, we thank you that Christ was raised from the dead after three days. As we celebrate Lent, as we reflect on our lives, and as we reflect on our spiritual conditions, and we look forward to Easter, we look forward to the ascension, help us to recognize our shortcomings and help us, Heavenly Father, to live lives that are reflective of our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit we pray. Amen.